0: Hello and welcome to Benyo Chats. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. If you had a magic wand, what would you change about the Church of England? On this episode, I speak to Fergus Butler-Gali. Fergus is a writer and a priest. We have a wide-ranging discussion on what it is like to be a young priest in England today. He gave me a sense of the beauty and community of the calling, but also the frustrations with the bureaucracy. Hope you enjoy the show. Do like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. And with that, here's my chat with Fergus. Fergus, welcome. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. What do you think is most misunderstood about Liverpool?
1: Oh. Um everything is the answer. Almost everything is misunderstood about Liverpool. Um you know, you get people who make jokes about lack of employment or people stealing cars, all that kind of um, scally culture, that idea of um, Scousers being sort of um, dangerous or idle, um, that that very much, that's obviously misunderstood. And, uh, you know, there's the whole, there was the scandal around the um, Boris Johnson, the Spectator interview, the idea of Liverpoolians as as sort of grievance mongers. Again, I don't think that's true. Um, But I think Liverpool has some myths about itself as well. I think... Um, it's actually, deep down in my experience, a very sort of small-c conservative city. It's a red, you know, red city, Scouse Socialist. It, it's, it doesn't like change very much. It's, it's a place that, that... So I think the myths about Liverpool are the ones that are imposed on it from the outside, um, which are generally very negative. Um, those are completely untrue. The people there are exceptionally welcoming. They're incredibly hard-working. Um, then there are the myths of Liverpool itself, cultivates. We've always been a city of immigrants. We've always been this, that all. It isn't really true. The history of Liverpool is exceptionally interesting, um, I should say. It's, I think the most fascinating of any city in, in Britain, um, from how it goes from a sort of fishing village founded by King John to, to, to this centre of global trade, to what it is now in its 20th century history. Um, but what, what, I, what I would say about Liverpool is the one thing that isn't a misunderstanding is that it's different. It is different. It feels different to other cities. It feels like it has a um, a culture to its to itself. Fascinating stat recently that that every single accent in the UK, every single regional accent, is softening. I.e., moving towards a kind of center point. Whether it's sort of people who speak, you know, very received pronunciation. You know, the Queen, famously the late Queen, her voice got sort of started like near, sort sort of clipped yeah and so before by the end it became a little more elongated with the vowel every accent is doing this from, you know Tyneside to devon um to it's sort of cockney except liverpool and the liverpool accent is getting harsh scalps just getting more scalps, more sort of harsh um which i think says something about its its willingness and its desire to be different and do things differently so that sort of myth but I think everything everything else, the way in which that unfolds, I think, can
0: lead to misunderstandings. And does their sense of identity and culture span most of the city? Everyone who speaks Scouse have it. And does it span rich to poor? Because your ministry was... Did that also span rich to poor? Or was your ministry mostly in a kind of poorer community? Very much it spanned rich to poor.
1: Um... The thing about Liverpool is, having said, you know, it's, it's always been, I mean, it, it, it is a hugely diversity, but diverse in ways that people don't quite expect. So it's it's wave of sort of, um, uh, for instance, uh, it's got the oldest Chinatown in, in the UK. And now most immigrants to the UK from um, China came in the kind of uh, the late 19th or, or, or late 20th centuries. Uh, in Liverpool, they came in the 18th century. And so you have... You know, people who are from Chinese Liverpool families who have been running businesses there for nearly three years, and that that is a very different kind of rooting. Um, ditto, it's it's black communities, partly because of its links with with the slave trade, which which again, Liverpool perhaps keeps quiet in some ways. Um, but but in terms of where, so yes, it's very diverse, and that but that scouseness does. It is sort of throughout. It goes like a stick of rock. It really is throughout the whole of society there. Um, but my ministry was it was it was it was with everyone, and that that sort of is the great joy of the church, the parish church I served in. So it is the oldest institution in Liverpool. It, you know, Liverpool was founded as a little chapel by the River Mersey, which became the Church of Our Lady and St Nicholas. Which means you were dealing with um, you know the Lord Mayor, the political elite, you know the Mayor Joe Anderson, who was famously arrested on corruption charges. you were dealing with um, the Earl of Derby because. Again, Liverpool is still hugely aristocratic in a number of ways. The, the Duke of Westminster and the Earl of Derby own vast tracts of the city centre in a way that, that that isn't the case in in Manchester or Newcastle or even central London, um, which is which is considered more aristocratic. But because you are in the centre of the city, and because in Liverpool distances are shorter, so you can have these glorious Victorian, um, you know, apartment blocks, Edwardian apartment blocks, which are. Filled with comparatively wealthy people these new skyscrapers and things like that you know we had a skyscraper opposite us where there was a sort of box on the top of it which was a self-contained apartment where jürgen klopp had lived for his first few years as manager of liverpool so you've got you've got that and then literally one street away you will have um council housing estate housing you have people living living you know very close to the poverty line so Unlike London, where you can sort of categorise, there are pockets of social housing in places like Chelsea and Westminster, I know that. But in Liverpool, it really is very, very obvious that, that from one street, or even on the same street, one street to another, you have this incredibly close, um, close-knit living of, of the, the super-rich, in terms of the footballers, um, and some of the businessmen who are there, and the really some of the poorest people in the UK. So yeah, we had to deal with both of them, because, because they were in the parish, and that
0: that's sort of the point of the parish church. Did they have to? Did they make you choose sides between Everton and Liverpool? <laughs> yes, those <Although it's> yes. <laughs> difficult congregations. They did. And gosh, I
1: have to say, it, you nothing prepares. I mean, I I I followed football. My my father was a, a director at Charlton Athletic Football Club. Um, when he when he left the army, um, so again, I had always gone round. I, I knew about football. I'd never quite believed the level of the intensity of the of the kind of rivalry. There are. I had a colleague who wouldn't wear anything red. He wouldn't mm-hmm. wear red clothing. He just wouldn't wear it because yeah. he was such Levitania. Um I, I will say I went to Goodison Park more, I went to Everton more than I went to Liverpool. But I used to get out of it by saying, of course, I was really a Tranmere Ravers
0: fan who were like right. Eamon Birkenhead. You play in white, So very good. Safer to be wearing black then, yes, really. least. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so did your time in Liverpool um, confirm your faith or dent it in any way? Or did it swing... In roundabouts i have my impression from reading your work that faith is something that compounded and crept up on you over time crept's probably not the right word but compounded over time as opposed to and i guess most people don't have a a kind of damascene moment where they convert except for these occasional uh saints and and and, and thoughts like that but i think for most ordinary people and it is. There's a kind of quiet growing, or not even quiet, or maybe in steps and things. Um, and I get my impression that actually, perhaps your faith was confirmed at least in the everyday uh, ministry. And was my impression correct, or was it dented at all, or what happened? Well, it certainly, it certainly changed and adapted. I think it
1: was confirmed, uh, but I, but I think your point is is absolutely spot on. This idea, I think there's a there is a there is a myth that people have maybe people outside christianity and i think some people in christianity have this idea that uh, there is a kind of burning bush moment there is a road to damascus there is a radical showy you know thunder and lightning jazz hands assorted choirs moment where you say i now believe i'm a christian this is is." and and you know there are certain churches who and certain people within the church of england who i don't think help in that there's this idea that, that people say sort of, well, that was the day I knew I gave my life to Jesus. That's the day I, I can pinpoint you the day I became Christian. I could tell you when I was christened, when I was baptized as a baby. But I think part of the 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 historic prevalence of infant baptism, of baptizing children in the Church of England, um, which has always been its tradition, means that actually people then have faith as a sort of on a back burner almost. And and, you know, if you're cooking a large meal and you've got something, let's say you, you're cooking a roast dinner and you've got your gravy on the back burner, right? The gravy is the thing that will make the meal, but you're not paying attention to it for most of that meal until it becomes critical, right? Until it bubbles over or until it you realise the gas wasn't on at all and you haven't cooked it full stop. So so I think for most people, it is this sort of this slow burn, but as you say, compacted and confirmed by certain experiences, undoubtedly. And But those often aren't. Um, you know one moment they are whole periods of our lives and my the period of my life that I spent in Liverpool absolutely did that because well it showed me multiple things it showed me um, the good the church can do um, it was a very positive experience of what the church is doing both in uh, practical terms as we talked about there is, there is poverty enormous practical help is being given by the church in terms of food banks in terms of legal advice in terms of giving people kind of a sense of purpose really a place to go, a roof over their heads, etc. But it also showed me that that the church can have a kind of sparkling intellectual life. It, my colleagues were fantastic there. Um, it showed me that, that 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 it can really give meaning, not just practical help, but actually something something much deeper than that. Um, and so, yeah, I was I was hugely confirmed. It was a hugely positive uh, experience for me. And, and sort of selfishly, not, it showed me what the church can do, the capital C church. It showed me what that small C, that individual church was doing. But it also confirmed in me, I suppose, a sense that this is what I should be doing as well. And I think inevitably, talking about that thing about faith, I think there is a sense of imposter syndrome with clergy because you go up there and you, and it's your job to to do something that is in itself impossible, make an impossible to know God known. Um, as an unworthy servant of the most worthy God, as, as, as certain theologians put uh, it, but also you're aware that your faith does change, and there are days when you don't feel like you're doing the right thing, and there are days where you don't feel you're in the right job, and there are days where sometimes you go downstairs and you don't, you're not even sure you believe in God. But the whole point is you're held within an institution, and you're held within a, a sort of cradle of worship, a rhythm of things that can keep you going, and that's why that regularity and that rhythm is so. Um, but for me, it, it, it sort of confirmed me against that. Having had that before, there was sort of this, you know, should I be doing this, you know, raucous teenagers. I didn't behave well. Not the kind of, you know, people who knew me when I was, you know, at school or university, when they hear that i become ordained, but the jaws head floor. ordained as a sort of really him. Um, so there is, a, there is a sense of that kind of imposter syndrome. And, and I think that happens to people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of traditions in the church where i suppose what liverpool taught me is of course it's not actually about me mm. it doesn't matter if i have impost syndrome every priest necessarily has that it's about being held in the kind of cradle of the whole, held within the tradition held within that that rhythm of doing things and actually knowing that that it, it could operate it will operate it does operate without you and then knowing that you are sort of useless so to speak being liberated to then do what you need to do um and becoming becoming a kind of agent of of that which is good and right
0: and and, and speaks of glory, I suppose. And have you ever lost your faith or come to a very low ebb that it might be? I'm I recall a story. So we are recording near Labrick Grove, um, which is uh, in West London, and there is actually a set of Carmelite nuns around the corner, and these particular nuns. Um, a bunch of them have a vow of of silence as well as prayer and live what I would say most people would say such an austere life that it seems incredible that they are are around. Um, But there was a documentary that someone managed to fathom after writing to them continuously for quite a number of years and the head nun, I get the terminology wrong, uh, but one of the most important nuns there uh, described her time when she first joined uh, the monastery and she'd graduated from Cambridge uh, so very uh, um, and from um, uh, I think a reasonably well-to-do family who didn't understand her choice and so she said no I've done my uh, university thing and I'm, I'm now this is what I want to do uh, but she also described for what seemed to be um, a number of years where she really questioned whether she was doing the right thing these enormous vows of poverty austerity and continuous prayer for others and i was listening to her and she wasn't sure for years that it was the right thing and then she came uh, closer to her her face and was now very important and i that really struck me as as someone who's living such an incredible life coming so close to losing faith or essentially i think had had lost a sort of faith and then come back to it i wonder if that was something you've come across or you come across in in clergy who you meet. Absolutely, and I very much find that that faith that has gone
1: through serious encounters with doubt, I mean serious encounters, not just, as I said, those moments where you think, oh, I can't be bothered today, because everybody has those with any kind of, people have that with their, whatever job they do. Mm. Um, but, But I think faith that has gone through a serious encounter with doubt is always stronger at the tail end of it than than faith that hasn't. And I do encounter people who haven't really experienced doubt. And and actually, I for a long time I didn't really experience. It. I suppose I, I I experienced, as I say, this kind of sense that, well, oh, should I be doing this? But I don't know whether I'd undergone some of the real kind of horrors that some people go. Now, I did go through a period feeling really very, you know, I took a job in London that that was was misery inducing um hated it I, I hated where i worked i hated who i worked with um and and hate is a very toxic emotion and it and it, it is it is cancerous in the sense that it spreads and that if it isn't sort of treated it will cause lasting damage essentially and it will kill other parts of your life other than where it started and i was beginning to find that to be the case and so you know when you when you are treating something cancerous the the one other the ways of treatment is of course you blast where where this has come from you know the, you you try and kill with with radiation so part of me thought well maybe I should cut faith out of my life completely you know maybe it needs to be maybe I need a kind of chemo on that I need to just irradiate that so that the other parts of my life cannot be poisoned by the by the real nastiness and poison that I'm experiencing in the world of of Faith in in where I was working, um, and I so I I did come close to making that decision, but slowly but surely I realised that actually the the analogy with with it being sort of cancerous is wrong, because actually the way the way faith works is 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 sort of like anything it has it has the potential for enormous good and it has the potential for for enormous wickedness and evil and enormous bad and and the the job that my job i I felt as a person of faith was was to as I think any anything is it speaks more perhaps to the human spirit than to the specifics of faith that when something that was good and enriching becomes bad and poisonous, it's about going back to basics and working out well what got me here in the first place and why why do I feel this cool? why do i how do I you know? Everything has a potentiality of good. Everything has a potentiality of bad. How do I go back to the beginning and turn back along the path of the good? And um, and that's what I sort of had to do, which meant actually quite the opposite of, of of cutting it out completely. I had to go back to the very root basics of it. It's more pruning than than irradiating.
0: It's it's you know a kind of horticultural auto, um, synonym. It's perhaps more help. Um, I definitely got that sense for your time at Liverpool, and I got a real great sense of the rhythm of ministry births weddings and Mm. particularly deaths uh, and funerals and i also got this sense that you wrote that a you're kind of feeling fulfilled by this i would call it everyday ministry although everyday sort of seems to not do it um justice and Actually, through that, you were also conscious that you were holding something larger than yourself, mm-hmm. which I thought was uh, very telling. But um, I'd be interested in in that theme of death, which goes um, through the book. So, my uh, fun question would be: What reading or music would you have at your own funeral, or what have you found uh, most touching in funerals that you've been to? I ask this partly because I actually have a, I've had a show. Uh, for the last couple of years, a performance lecture show where uh, you get to help me create my own funeral. So I've had many different pieces of music chosen by my audience, but I'm always interested in what people would choose themselves.
1: Yeah, I and I have been to, obviously, lots of funerals, taken lots of funerals, and each funeral is different. That is that is important to know, even if the words you're using are ostensibly the same. Uh, I have a long-running joke with my mother about this because my, my mother wants a kind of, um, you know, everybody coming in bright colours, celebration of life sort of thing. Um she wants happy music, cheerful music. Um that to me sounds (laughs) appalling. I can't think of anything worse. So I keep on threatening that I would pre-decease her. So but just to avoid having to go to her funeral. Um because I I, what I would like is and and this is partly because I think you do it's not that I'm again there are some clergy can be very sort of judgmental. I I have been to funerals like that 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 work, that are that are sort of make you feel Happy to be alive. But but the more funerals I go to, the more I realise, I think we have a kind of myth. We like to think the funeral is about the dead person, but it's, it's not. Uh, and the funeral is... About the living. Is about the living and how they can cope and carry on. Now, for some people, that might be a kind of celebration of life thing. But I think, actually, a really important moment with funerals is it's one of the only times we do acknowledge death where We actually say death is real and people do die and we will die. And so for me, there's something I think enormously salutary about basically telling people that, that yeah, okay, this has happened. Yes, life carries on, but but death is a, is a thing that we pass through. Now again, in the Christ- as, a, as a Christian, I don't believe death to be the absolute death. I don't I don't say so for me this idea that you can only in, in, in a funeral, a, you don't acknowledge death. And B, you simply focus on that life that has just been lived and the wonders of it is sort of slightly counterintuitive because to me there is there is much much better to come. Firstly, because I believe in the concept of eternal life, I believe in heaven. Um, and two, you know, death re- then becomes the elephant in the room. I think it's much better to look at head on and be be honest about it. So for me, I would what would I have? I would have an absolutely. I've sort of said I want I want it. I want everybody dressed in black. I want it pouring with rain. Only the priest is allowed an umbrella outside. Um, I want my will read out by a kind of crusty lawyer, (laughs) and there to be a kind of fight. I want an absolute textbook kind of um, church, you know, historic Church of England funeral. Um, Partly because I think, yeah, as I say, I think there needs to be an acknowledgement of death and an acknowledgement of eternal life. Those are the things I'm interested in. And and again, I've, I've what I've said explicitly is there will be a reading from the Bible and there will be a sermon. And the sermon cannot mention me. Right. I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about the thing that I hold to be true, namely, and the thing that I've cultivated my life around, namely the idea that, that Jesus Christ, by his resurrection, death and resurrection, has defeated death. Fine. Pre-Trump, not on me. Um, I'm thinking of employing a bouncer to remove anybody <laughs> who uses the phrase celebration of life um, from, including, if need be, my mother. Um, <laughs> from, from... Whatever church it's held in, but and I, I'm being slightly facetious, but I, but I am, I, ironically, of course, as someone who is quite kind of cynical, sometimes that funeral would probably reflect me. <laughs> all, <laughs> all, all you know, all singing, all dancing. But I, I've been to all of them, and and yeah, I think, as I say, I do think the ones that work best, are the ones that say, yeah, this person has died. Death is not death. Death is not the end, but death is real. Where some of them I think are attempts to pretend it's not.
0: If I recall correctly, I think you wrote in your book that people were the church's greatest treasure. Do you still believe that to be true? Uh yeah. I well, so that that goes back to the story of
1: St. Lawrence. So St. Lawrence is the, the patron saint of all kinds of things. Um comedians, barbecues, um which relates to his manner of his death, he was roasted alive. And midway through um being roasted, St. Lawrence sort of summoned over the uh, Roman guards. He went, what could you possibly want? You're being burnt to He said, I think you need to turn me over. I'm done on this side. So he got them to flip him round. Um, but he, the prank that he got into trouble with was when the, the emperor of Rome asked him to bring him the great treasures of the church. He said, I need money. You can bring me the church's greatest treasures, meaning silver and gold. And St. Lawrence bought him a people. And he bought him specifically the lame, the old, the... the uh, children, uh, the mute, the deaf, etc, the blind. Um, so yes, I state that the, that the church's greatest church of people. However, I would preface that with the fact that um, some of the church's greatest problems are rooted in people as well. Um, and the thing with the church is it is a human institution. Um, if the church didn't have humans in it, it would be it could be perfect but it isn't, and the reason why it's not perfect is because it's got humans in it, and yet its whole existence is predicated on the fact there are humans in it. So that sounds very roundabout, but what I'm essentially trying to say is that I am not some great uh, candle carrier for human nature. I actually have a very low view of human nature. I do think we are inclined to do bad things. I think we regularly do do bad things, I can only speak for myself in that regard, but yeah, I, I, I have a kind of swiftian view of human nature which is which is not positive that said it is the job of the church to see in the human the possibility of the divine the possibility of the good and the perfect and the beautiful and the true even amid, whilst and again it goes back to what i was saying about funerals the best way you can do that is not by pretending that the bad stuff isn't there but by acknowledging the bad stuff saying actually yes we are all bad and wicked and do things wrong Will stop that then enables us to live in a way that is so, so liberated by acknowledging that
0: that we can work towards the good
1: and the
0: beautiful does that make sense fantastical also explains how you want your funeral constructed yes <laughs> so if you were to ask that same question what is the greatest treasure of the church to the synod or to the uh, manager class of the church of england Do you think they would uh, respond in the same way? And I guess my question is getting at, I think a lot of people on the outside of the church um, don't really understand the church's institution or the church's bureaucracy. And actually, there's been quite a lot of mumblings from frontline vicars and priests about the problems of the institution of the church, which is, as you say, rooted in its people, perhaps rooted also in its economics, Mm -hmm. in its governance, in its long uh checkered history mm-hmm. so i'd be interested in your reflections on the institution of the church and whether they value the same things in the same ways or how it's come about
1: yeah i i think there is we are in the midst of a serious problem at the moment of disconnect between the ordinary people of, of god the ordinary people of the church and its managerial class um were you to ask them what are the greatest pressure of the church you would get a 600 you'd get a consultative process you get a 600 word policy document you wouldn't get an answer. You would get a claim that they'd followed due process, that they'd done this, that and the other. You would get a working group formed. You wouldn't get anything that speaks to to anything that is beautiful and true. That, that is my big issue, and I think we, we've reached a point. Yes, where where the structures are are hugely complicated, but but the way I describe it to people, and again, people who don't understand it, is is that there are two churches of England. Yeah, you know, there is the Church of England that is your local vicar who often has many many churches that he or she has to craft her Uh, it's all the people who help them it's the people who try and live according to the principles of jesus christ on a day-to-day basis who volunteer their time and their money and their and their effort who say their prayers who struggle along these are the church of england they they are the church and they are the people if you go into your local church of england church nine times out of ten they are who you will encounter yep Particularly if you're in a place where it isn't kind of lots of gathered churches. Sort of you, know, you get a problem in London where you have people travelling all over to these sort of big showy churches and don't really have much connection with the specifics and where they are of the parish. But nine times out of ten, that's what you'll get. You then have Church of England PLC. Yeah, you have a kind of managerial class. And again, they are increasingly monochrome, not in there necessarily in the in the externals of diversity. But in the way they think, so absolutely fascinating. The um, I'm not a huge fan of the Myers-Briggs test. I think it's mostly voodoo, but I think it was very telling that um, whilst the the external diversity of the bishops has changed in terms of their class background, their gender, their race, their educational background, their areas of interest ostensibly, that has become considerably more diverse. What has become much, much, much more important is the way they think. And tellingly, uh, I think it was said that there was only one or two bishops on the bench who didn't have the same Myers Briggs profile. That's interesting. The thing. So, so that is why we have institutional inertia. I would suggest is that people who think in the same way, namely that uh, what should triumph is proceed the procedural over the human. Uh, what should triumph is the sort of um, technical over over the the mystical. Um, now, these are people who who. In my mind, be fantastic as your bank manager. I'm not sure they'd be very good. Well, they haven't proved to be very good as bishops. They haven't proved to be very good running the church because, yes, the church needs procedures. Yes, it needs management. Yes, it needs the technical. But what you cannot do is try and, uh, try and make the people, whose job it is to set hearts on fire, yeah. you know, to, to to make people go and do great sacrificial things, namely the bishops, the leaders, the, the shepherds of the flock, the people who, who are the successors to the apostles. Remember, who Jesus chooses his disciples are not managers. Yeah, he chooses very unlikely people, dangerous people, difficult people, people who make mistakes, grumpy people, you know, unrealistic people. That's who he chooses as his disciples, not the safe managerial class. Yeah. And the problem is that now we have a church that is run by a safe managerial class in the interests of that safe managerial class. And that will then mean that that. First Church of England, kind of the good and ordinary people of God, will always play second fiddle to procedure, and that actually you have sucked out the human, as well as the divine, and you are left merely with a kind of husk of of policy,
0: you know, paper that doesn't mean anything. And does that explain why the church has run into such troubles over safeguarding and its? Response, or at least a bureaucratic response, and there's also been, uh, at least uh, in Britain at the moment, a dispute on uh, on pay and on mm-hmm. economics as well. I have one reflection hearing that this this is from corporate world, and we often joke that you cannot change or influence corporate culture by policy, and in fact, putting a policy on it is usually your death. Now, that's because mm-hmm. there's people very well-meaning going ah the only thing we could do is create a policy because actually culture is arranged by leadership and behaviors actually even in corporate world is defined by corporate purpose what you want to achieve in the organization or company that you work for and i found it's an interesting paradox because you would have thought that with the church in fact you do meet people like you who are full of faith and purpose so that you would have made it uh easier but yet it seems to be uh sort of needs to be not so is that your major through theme for why it's run into these troubles with safeguarding and economics and things like that or is is there something more going on i think i think i think there are, there's a there are multiple layers there i, I suppose i
1: think every institution has people who will enter it to do bad things right there are there are bad faith actors and the problem with the church is much with Education or the health service, um, is that as an ostensibly caring profession? Ironically, it will attract a higher number of sociopaths, basically, because
0: there is a curtain behind which one can hide. So, so yeah, interesting. Church. And and do you think they always give people because of its nature as well the benefit of the doubt first yeah, time I, round? Yeah, absolutely. I think and there's a whole you know we're told to forgive people, mm-hmm. right? So that so there is an inbuilt problem there for
1: Christianity, you know, but but that's not an impossible problem. That's not a circle that should be should be square, because Jesus is also very clear. You know, anybody who harms those, um, he specifically says this about children, about vulnerable children. He says, anybody who harms these, it's better for him that he would have a stone thrown around his neck and he'd be thrown in the sea. Yep. So there is there is there is clear structure there. I think what you, what you have is, and it's absolutely fascinating to hear what you say about the court, because I get the impression, the corporate world is, is, as you say, is moving away from this idea that you can manage your way out of problems, that you can that you can simply slap a policy on it, that you can simply follow due process and things will fundamentally then work. Former Bishop of the Church of England famously said, you can rely on the Church of England to enter a room just as everybody else is leaving it. And it strikes me that the Church of England is still in the room of managerialism, of, of policy, of, of paper, I have friends who, who work in, in, in the corporate world. They are being sent on meditation retreats, their leadership, you know, people in in their leadership roles. They're being sent to rediscover the ideas of, you know, Ignatian spirituality, to, to, to connect themselves, to create healthy rhythms within which they can operate. My leaders, you know, someone whose job it is to, to speak spiritually, we're being sent on kind of hackneyed MBAs out in here you know, conference centres in the home counties and they hope this will somehow help us manage our way out of decline. It's, it's deranged. And, it, and, it, and it, is, it is essentially doing exactly what that is. It's doing, trying something that the rest of the world has found wanting and we're thinking, hang on. And, and it means again that bad faith actors can, can work very well. So there's this recent absolute scandal in the Diocese of London where this guy, Martin Sargent, who's now gone to prison for defrauding the diocese of millions of pounds, millions of Essentially, could walk in saying, "I know all this business voodoo. Let me run things." And rather than saying, hmm, "Hang on, actually, that's not how we run this institution. This is a different institution that works on a kind of essentially on a on a, on a completely different hierarchy to that." The, the leaders of the church turned around and said, "You know, three bags full. Yes, how much? How can we? How can we give you everything you need?" So there's a kind of this sense that because we need to. Because, yes, the underlying issue in all of this, of course, is that fewer people are going to church. The church's assets uh, uh, are increasingly spread too thinly. Now, that that goes back, the economic problem goes back to at least the 1950s, the 1960s, when essentially every vicar was paid a different amount. Different parishes were worth more because the way that it was funded were based on the historic assets of that parish. Now, in the 1970s, the church says, well, let's centralise that. Let's bring it all into the centre and we'll spread it out evenly. The problem is that what the centre did, inevitably was spend more money on the centre and less money on the peripheral. And so now you have a system where the centre is, the managerial class has grown enormously. I mean, it used to be that the bishop had one, two secretaries, and that was it. And now you have 70, 80, 90, 100, 200 people in some diocese diocesan offices, vast corporate buildings. That money has to come from somewhere, and where it has come from is now it's almost impossible to give that back because of the way the centralized that funding has worked. but you you do have an economic problem because fewer people are going to church and again, that perhaps is a problem of leadership because we can't convince people when we're when we're totally caught up in this argument over how do we pay people and how do we how do we keep the show on the road, we're not focusing on how do we actually encounter people. but again, how can you encourage? People with the skills you need to come and join that institution, to come and give up opportunities to earn elsewhere, opportunities to have more comfortable lives elsewhere, to say yes, take up your cross, follow me. When you can't even pay them, you can't even give them a house. In some
0: cases, you can't even offer them anything. You have to say, "Well, not our problem." Interesting. It strikes me that 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 reading of the church shows me that the church reflects all of the problems that we see in society. Correct, cool. but maybe a step half a step (laughs) three steps behind it also strikes me that actually that that manager class is performing like a very poor corporate and this is probably maybe imitating something that's not whereas if you had i'm just going to throw it out because people would know patagonia which is a very purposeful uh, clothing company Mm. but they would have actually purposeful companies tend to have a mantra of of three p's which is people planet profit But they put the peas in because without profit, you can't support the people and the planet. So this is why it comes within a corporate form, not obviously for church. But it strikes me that churches that actually they haven't had very good CEOs or managers, but actually they wouldn't they wouldn't necessarily. So if you had a magic wand or say God's powers for this, Mm -hmm. is there one thing or a couple of things that you would wave and change around? The church of england or, or organized religion because increasingly i hear i guess it's with this you know the stats on the organized religion bit across all of them are, are pretty much going down but if you ask the question slightly differently you know something around spirituality or something around community and faith um particularly in this country although i see it echoed in surveys over around it's still roughly where you you would have thought it might be because at the margin human beings uh, do you seem to believe in one another yes you have bad faith you have bad apples everywhere but actually um there is a there is a stronger sense of of community uh, around that which i find quite striking so i don't know magic one what would you do yeah well, how one
1: how one does that you know how one is able to take that that goodwill that 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 real desire and i do think there is such a strong desire for what for what the church can offer and the church is failing to get it so what do i do with the magic wand? one um i would distribute the money more effectively the way you know the church of england has billions of pounds of assets yeah the way that is distributed is completely shockingly bad if it means going talking about what we went to earlier if it means actually saying okay we're going back to position one you know we are unraveling all of the bad change that has happened in the last 40 50 years and then let's work out how we can do it more fairly from that that's what i would do i would i would i would say actually we will, we will completely repeal the concept of common tenure, which is which is how priests are employed. We will completely repeal all of the centralization of funds and then let's see where we are. Yeah, distribute. Um, I would sack almost the entire current pension bishop, mm-hmm. frankly. One of the reasons why I will never get prolonged money in the Church of England, but I would, um, because I don't think they're up to scratch. I think they are theologically uninspiring. I think they are managerially incompetent and I think they are stuck within a cycle of dehumanizing technocracy, um, which, which means they cannot see the wood for the trees and they can no longer see the humanity of the people of God. And I would replace them with people who can see them. Now, they are, those people may be too old. They may be too young. They may be um, not skilled enough in the technical ways of the world, technical managerialism. None of that matters. Can they? I would make sure that every bishop has, every diocese has a bishop who can speak comprehensively and coherently of the beauty of following Jesus Christ, because that's what it's all about, right? I don't think you have that in the current club, frankly. Um, and so I would make sure that, that 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 again, the way I would change the way we appoint it, I would again, I would return some of that power back to um, people who are independent of the church, because this is part of the problem that we have become much more introspective in how we appoint people in the church of england um and much more power is held within a very small very churchy you know clique, essentially it used to be that you had input from the state you had input from external people it was much more Say, so hang on what are the skills a bit like you know if in a company you don't always want that to be a totally internal appointment do you if you're appointing a ceo in a company you don't want you know well what we're going to do is simply have the board, the, the four people who sit on the board are going to choose one of themselves and they'll hold it in rotation. That is not a recipe for any kind of constructive engagement. You get people from the outside saying, well, what do you think we need? What do we think we need? What are our values? That doesn't happen. doesn't happen. So I'd have a return to that. Um, and I suppose I would I would simply, and then having you know said all what's wrong, I would have a big campaign, both in terms of reminding people in the parishes, going round, Telling them this, but also telling people outside the church of all the good that is done and all the good that can be done and the enormous fulfilment that it can bring. Being engaged in the church of England, being employed by the church of England, being a minister in the church of England, finding my calling and my identity in the church of England is by far and away the most rewarding thing I have ever done. Yep, that include travel, degrees, you know, books, relationships, etc. My engagement with the church of England is the thing that has rewarded me more than anything else. We need to get out and tell people that that's possible, and I fear we're not doing it. So, yeah, I would have a blitz on, on how we communicate. I'd have a blitz on how we encourage. I think that's the huge thing that is lacking. People, I cannot emphasise how low morale is, mm. and it shouldn't be, because morale is low in the rest of the country, right? You know, the 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 the, the, the frontiers of the state are kind of constantly shaking. The political parties are hugely demoralised. Um, the city is not hugely buoyant with confidence. There's stagflation. Nothing works. The church should be a beacon of hope, not simply a circus mirror in funny outfits to the misery that permeates the rest of society. That's what we need to recapture.
0: That's what we need to get. Sure. That magic stuff. Yeah. That it sounds. That sounds stuff. That sounds amazing. I actually, the, the city's, although there is stagflation and things, is currently reasonably thriving really? actually. Yeah, but okay. um, that's a an aside the i i summarize that as really interesting that's given me more insight than i was expecting so decentralization uh then i'm not sure about how the economics of its work but that's really interesting the decentralization and, and a call to uh to an earlier time uh, i could see that you might not be very popular with bishops <laughs> or the manager uh, or the manager class but i think there's an element of truth of that but actually i it's would so say fun. there are some
1: incredible people in them you know there are i can pinpoint Two or three bishops who I think are hugely impressive, um, um and I can pinpoint people who are in that managerial class. Particularly some of the people who are fighting around the safeguarding stuff, who are who are trying to do things, who are fantastic. So I would say it is it is not all of them, but there is, I think, as as you know through the kind of corporate world, there is a kind of management brain. That
0: has yeah, I oh, surely sure it's not one way, but it actually strikes me that the church has a governance problem. Um, uh, and like you say, there's good people, but the, the system has come across which is causing people in the middle. And yes, maybe there is a lack of diversity of, of thinking as well, but the, the weight has compounded the wrong way and they cannot escape from that. Because, for instance, just your your comments around ha- how elections happen. So in a, in a corporate world, you, your board is meant to be very independent. And in fact, you have shareholders who will sack the board if they get very grumpy about it. So there are other mechanisms. But you're right. This idea is that you're choosing the best that you can for your long term purpose. And there was lots of things around that. Uh, But it strikes me that the the church, if it's just choosing within its own way, and if the same people are going to choose people who are like them, which you would generally gravitate towards because it takes a certain kind of person to choose people not like you. And, then that, and actually, that strikes me as a governance problem, because you can actually change those decision-making things by policy or by different mechanisms. But if the people in charge know about that and that, and you have your synod and all of that time, it, it strikes me as that. But maybe harking back to the earlier time, you, you've written a great book on uh, clergy um, over the last, I guess, few hundred years, and they come in different flavors and so listening to this also that the church has lost some of these flavors of uh, eccentrics um I guess intellectuals um, or you know people who are kind of borderline heretics I would guess as well um, you've also written a great book on on how they stood up to um, fascism and the like uh, so my thought on that is if you were going to be one of these types of reverends or priests who would you who would you have chosen to be or maybe you can channel them as they were back in their time, but they're now transported to here and you're going to be one of these reverends. would I you prefer to be an eccentric or a prodigal son or a bon, bon vivant would be more spun I don't know whether they have the most change what which which class I, would you I, do I, I always think
1: Margaret Thatcher had a line about um being ladylike you know, being a sort of classy lady and she said I don't mean it. There is one cast iron rule telling you know uh, telling people uh, by uh, about being an 80 if you tell people you are you aren't and I sort of think there's something about that about eccentricity I think if you if you go around telling people you're eccentric then then you're not a true eccentric because it can't be studied I think it has to be a the, the whole point of eccentricity has to be a complete a sort of detachment from other people's opinion of you um, now I generally, as as my previous comments probably suggest, I generally do have pretty low um, interest in what other people think or say about me, um, particularly the people with um, you know senior roles. Um, but but I do uh, I don't know whether I could. I, I think I think each of these operate in their own time. Now, I, if I could have the capacity and the free time. And the um and the bank account to be a true bon that'd be fantastic. But I, I would I would like nothing more. But I fear and I think uh, seriously I think I think you know God calls us in Christ to to say that you know, all things are blessed and and you shall not call these things unclean and you must enjoy the great mm. gifts God has given us. I think there is there is a reason why the central right of christianity is a meal with food and wine and with shared with friends mm. and i think i think that is sacramental that is that is where we can encounter god and um and and god institutes the sacrament in and of himself he says this is you know i this is my body um so i think i think
0: yes i suppose someone who who enjoys living, who is the most underrated Bon river then that you wrote about do you uh, think
1: well well one of the most famous ones was um,
0: the um,
1: former dean of Westminster, Buckland. Um, the, he was Dean Buckland and he was he was dean of Westminster, which is a very high profile. And he made it his mission to try and eat everything that had ever ever existed. So he ate mice, he ate tadpoles. This is dean of Westminster Abbey? Dean of Westminster Abbey. Yeah. When was this? This was in the Victorian era. So again, this is sort of the height of the church's power. And they put, as Dean of Westminster, this man who is obsessed with dinosaur feces this is a big thing. He, so he excavates dinosaurs. And again, that that was considered a threat to the church's... You know, this shows you just the catastrophic decline in, in confidence and culture that we have. That at the height of the Victorian era, at the height of the problems around Darwin and questions around the origins of the universe, they point into to Westminster Abbey. A, a man who believes his main role in life is not to sort of minister at the great moments of um, church and state, but to eat everything that he possibly can, um, including every kind of type of animal. He even eats the mummified heart of Louis XIV, which is good. <coughs> he goes to a museum, a private museum. They only let 10 people in to just look around this big house. And he gets a ticket because he's the dinnerware So they think, oh, he'd be a very good person to have on our private. They go on and they say, oh, now we reach the most impressive thing that we have. They very carefully take it out of this casket. He said, and we're going to, because you're such a privileged group of people, hand it round." And this is the mummified heart of King Louis XIV, smuggled out of France to the realm, and now kept here in our private museum. And it goes around all the people. This is amazing. This is wonderful. And it gets to Dean Buck, And he looks at it and he says, I've never eaten king before. And he but, pops it in his mouth. <laughs> of course, these people are completely horrified. And his only comment was, it was very dusty. So. <laughs> This is the kind of person they're appointing. Um but he is he is an incredible figure and an incredible sort of gourmand, an incredible thinker. I mean, his lectures on geology are still studied at Oxford today. Yeah, so he was a really you know, a great liver and eater and drinker. Um the more recent underrated Bombavera is a man called Brian Brindley, um, who was a great manager on the synod actually. And again, he sort of He's very, very, very recent, only died in the last 25 years or so. I think it was the year 2001 he died. Um, he, and he was a great lover of food and drink. He used to um, go shopping in red high heels to his late, latest Tesco. He'd fill, local Tesco, and he would fill his uh, trolley with double cream. Because he ate double cream with everything, because he said it made it less rich. Um, and famously, he put on this birthday for his 70th party for his 70th birthday party where he decided to have seven courses um and unsurprisingly given his mode of living um midway through the um i think it was the dressed crab and the croute in between the two uh, he keeled over and dropped dead um and the people said the only person who would have considered carrying on eating in such a circumstance was of course him <laughs> um but it was a great way to go he's in his great grand 70th birthday at the Athenaeum club um So I think he's 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 a lesser well-known one although interestingly when people talk to me about that book he is the one most of them have have met because he was
0: his funeral had to have been a great feast right that would have epitomized his life I I spent about five years of my life going to Westminster Abbey three times a week and listening to stuff and I had never had anyone like uh, Dean Buckland but that would have been that would have been really really inspiring um Underrated saint. Do you have an underrated saint? What, what does Church of England think about saints? We have, we, you have have saints, saints we have saints You do have saints, but kind of more famously in the Catholic tradition. Yes. But you have your own. Well, I feel they're all underrated though. Well, aren't the Church they? Church of England has a funny deal. Like,
1: <laughs> it said about the Reformation. It said, well, we're not going to get rid of saints. We still believe in the communion of saints. But we're not going to make any new ones. Now, they did actually make an exception with um, King Charles I when the, Re- when the Restoration happened. Charles was declared St. Charles king and martyr um, and put in the calendar now since then in the 20th century actually the Judge ring has put together a calendar whereby it includes holy people often unlikely holy people from recent years um, martyrs of the 20th century people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer is in there um, people like um, uh, some of those sort of anti-apartheid activists in South Africa are in there um and you know teachers and and preachers from the 19th and 20th century bishops charles gore who is um, founded a lot of monks and nuns back in the church of england he's helped bring them back he's in there um so there's there's a real sort of mix of people but they they tend not to call them saint x i mean in terms of most underrated saint goodness me there are so many um glorious ones there is a saint my absolute favorite saint whose name is saint joseph something i mean, he was he's a, a saint not in the church of english in the catholic tradition uh, but he's a patron saint of loud noises and um he was a junior brother in a monastery in peru i think it was and uh they needed money to rebuild the church it had been destroyed in an earthquake Said so we don't know what to do you know we can't farm we can't do anything so this chap said okay i've got so he found the noisiest donkey he could. Went round, he listened, constant braying. <coughs> went to the owner and said, can I buy your noisy donkey? He said, you'd be doing me a favour to take it off my hands. And essentially he went round every house in the town and he parked the donkey outside the house and said, I'm going to leave this donkey here until you give some money to the donation of the church. And eventually people got so fed up of the donkey making this loud noise that they gave him money. And so this chap became a saint because he rebuilt the church but entirely through making loud noises and annoying people. And I think he's such a good reminder that the saints, we think of the saints as kind of, you know, doe-eyed, um, very pious, constantly in prayer, but often annoying and loud people can be can be saints as well. And that's quite a good corrective. When someone annoys you, you think, hang on, they could be a saint.
0: Yeah, and that's a theme I get through all of your books and writing. And actually we've had it in this conversation that the church in its even today but in its huge history has a lot of diverse thinkers people who you wouldn't necessarily associate with the myth of a do-gooder churchgoer now um, much more wide-ranging in their thinking in their interests in their passions much more human in a concentrated um, humanity which I found really fascinating and you bring that to life uh, very well and with a lot of humor I think my favorite saint although i think this might be apocryphal i think it's saint drogo who's meant to be a saint of coffee but i think it's a it's a late one or something something on trading so i have an esoteric question for you because it's only uh only recently come to my mind um and that's around transubstantiation Mm. so this is the idea of becoming something because uh, i have this in my theater work and practice and i was um thinking about this and speaking with other theatre practitioners. And in theatre, we say an actor, say there's an actor that comes to mind, Maxine Peake, she's a great actor, Mm. Um, she becomes Hamlet. In that moment, she is Hamlet. And you don't say, well, she's obviously not a prince of Denmark, she's obviously on the one hand not Hamlet, but actually in that moment, she is obviously Hamlet. And we're not saying there's any process change, we are simply calling her Hamlet. And it occurred to me that that is actually a form of transubstantiation. Mm. And so if other people are really saying, this is the blood of Christ, this is the whatever, actually in that moment, who's to say that's not the same process, which is happening when we say Maxine peak, you are Hamlet. Yeah. And so my question is, has this ever come across in your thinking? And then maybe as my little segue, as that's a little bit esoteric, is do you think you become a different person or do clergy kind of become a little bit of a different person although you're the same person mm. when you're wearing the collar is that in itself a kind of form of transubstantiation absolutely yeah
1: i think i think that's a really interesting analogy and, and again the, the, the sort of, there are lots of strands of theology around the eucharist of thinking around what body and blood um what the bread and wine is um from memorialism which says you're simply doing something because that's what jesus did and you're copying him which again, there is a there is a school of thought in acting that says you're simply copying. Like, yeah. Uh, there's consubstantiation that says, okay, well, it it is more than than simply you know you, you have a kind of spirit with you and through you the reception of this, but it isn't necessarily in an essence itself. You have transubstantiation. You then have the kind of the slightly Anglican mess of the idea of the real presence that you you affirm the idea that Christ is present, but you don't necessarily. Want to know how, and it comes down to how technical do you like your metaphysics? How <laughs> technical do you like to know? Well, what is this? And as you say, would you technically say Maxine Peak is Prince of Denmark? Now, in that moment, perhaps. Um, but I suppose uh, as as a good Anglican, I think the technicalities are less in. You know, it's it's about incidents and accidents. The technicalities of it are perhaps less interesting. As you say, the fact of the moment, living in the moment. But but that that leads on to you know is do you become a different person when you're wearing the collar? Yes, because you become a cipher for everybody's, and you become a different person to each individual person you encounter. So you are a different person to the you know lady who comes to the midweek communion service, to the guy sitting outside Tesco who you give five quid to, to the person who just sees you on the bus. But you are necessarily a cipher for that person's encounter with the church that person's encounter with god that person's encounter with with themselves and their own relationships with with the world so so you necessarily become whilst whilst i should say also maintaining this is why it is a good analogy whilst also maintaining the kind of bread and wineness of your own the fact of your own being you are still at that point uh son or daughter a husband or wife you are a friend you are a lover you are a irritant you are someone who is allergic to milk you are someone who doesn't eat tuna you are someone who prefers sparkling. yeah all the things that are bound up in the in in the sense of self are still there and yet you also then have this this fact that you are no longer yourself you are now a a a type, a cypher placeholder for on one level the church but on a, on a better level you, you're there to represent jesus christ and that's a it is a huge responsibility yeah
0: Ooh, that's fascinating i hadn't heard it explained that way and makes makes a lot of sense as to that uh communal being uh, that you can bear okay so back from the esoteric yeah and to a little deviation into hardcore theology there for a moment we'll go to a few more fun things let's do so who would who would you like to write a biography of yourself? Or would it have to be autobiography what you're doing? But if someone's gonna write a biography of you, who would it be? Um
1: Can I have a dead person?
0: Yeah. Um oh, Shakespeare.
1: Shakespeare. <laughs> um I would like Lawrence Stern, the author of Tristan Shatton. Uh, yeah. Because I think that his kind of absurdist A he was a clergyman, so he'd get get it. B I think he is one of the funniest writers ever to write in the English language and C his kind of almost modernist kind of rush for the absurd that you get interest from Shandy is is unparalleled and I think might be the only way sometimes I find myself in a situation and think this is so absurd there is no way of communicating this with a straight
0: face Yeah so there's a there's a whole branch in creative arts where we there's an argument that humanities have gone slightly wrong by not following more of the Tristram Shandy line, mm. because the other line in modern novels, which you probably know more than me, I haven't particularly studied literature as a, as a theory, more as a, as a practitioner, is you have the kind of modern story which needs to be perceived to be quite close mm-hmm. to how we think life is. And if it feels too far-fetched, it's, we don't believe it. Whereas we have this phrase now is that we we see things in real life and we go, oh, if that was a story, you wouldn't believe yeah. it. Whereas if you follow the Tristram Shandy line and you have got elements of this magic realism Mm -hmm. and these other things, which are obviously fantastical, fantasy and science fiction would be there. But actually that fantasy and science fiction, magic realism and and all alike, what we found is that by being so obviously not of the real world, it's actually revealing something deeper. It also shows much more what we call narrative plenitude. And actually it's a good... Think about it because it's a little bit of your critique of the uh, of of the institution and the church because it doesn't have that var- variety anymore because it's it's adhering itself to something that it thinks it wants to be, which is closer to this modern life mm. concept as opposed to towards the your eccentrics, your Bucklands, yeah. and, your and, Tristan Chandis. Of course, what, which which book does that
1: better than almost anything else? the bible yeah people <laughs> say to me it's like, do you think it's true that x y and z happen in the bible when you have you know balaam's ass where the donkey starts talking it's like well well i out of great argument is who is one of the best theologians of the bible is pontius pilate because he asked the question what is truth mm. and then he answers his own question when he says behold the man so the truth is necessarily then encapsulated in the lived experience of christ that is where what is <sighs>
0: It's all uh, we've gone Deep back. Bible decades. stuff, yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah.
1: you know, when someone says, "Well, oh, what about all the kind of crazy stuff in the Bible?" Such, it's like, yeah, crazy stuff happens all the time. Yeah, and 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 actually, something that that is crazy and see, as you say, magic realism, that can speak more earnestly of the truth than than someone describing there. I went to the shops and I bought some toothpaste, and then I went home and I spoke to my friend, and then I went to bed. Yeah. That something that, that that is ostensibly more anarchic or
0: more more absurdist can speak much more deeply the truth than, than something that is simply procedural. Yeah. gets closer to the mind gets closer to you're the human, you. given that we're not even, you know, when we're, we're nowhere near close in, in any of that. So your writing day, I mean, or your, your week. So you, you, you minister, um, you're going to have, um, I hear, uh, hopefully another job soon, but where do you find time for your writing? Are you one of those who writes, you know, an hour a day or four hour a day, or does it, does it come in fits and starts and do you have anything particular to your writing process um it's quite erratic i i used to always carry notebooks with me i've now got into the appalling habit of the notes app
1: on my phone which i hate but i do find myself struck i might be on the tube or on the train Um, i try and keep i have a really small notebook laptop with me that i try and keep with me at all times i do try and keep written notebooks on me but the thing i always have on me is my phone so i can always take notes on that so so i will often write whole paragraphs or whole articles. Just if they come mm-hmm. to me if i'm as I say, if i'm traveling i spend a lot of time traveling so i have now got to a point where i work really well on the train okay you know i'm traveling around the country if i'm doing promotion to the book i was in in scarborough the other week um i'm going up to yorkshire again i'd be in liverpool i'm going to the west country in the autumn for a big tour there um, so there's a lot of traveling i don't drive and so i use the time to work and i find that is hugely but if it comes to actually sitting down and writing a chapter, I do like to have done all that noting and all that scrum, and I've got hundreds of... What well, I tend to do is I copy it. This is incredibly boring, but, but it does speak to the slightly chaotic nature of it. What I will do is I will write it in the notes app on my phone. I will then copy it to a Gmail document, Gmail, a draft Gmail, send that email to myself, this whole random array of notes, and then put that on a Word document. And then from that, extrapolate further Word documents that are... It's like, okay, well, that relates to that article. or That relates to that chapter. But when it comes to actually sitting down and writing the chapter, I like to write generally in the evenings. Sometimes in the in the afternoons, actually I can work from, I don't like really working in the mornings. Um, I like to have a bit of a lead in. But I can work from, say 11, 11 o'clock I can probably start work. Um, and I like to sit and get a really solid three or 4,000 words done.
0: That's pretty good in the day. But it strikes me you write a lot from observation. Your, your writing seems to me very well um observed and i'm guessing that comes from your your notebooks and other observation and then the other thing which is not utterly unique but it's not perhaps super common is a thread a very strong thread threads too weak a word of uh, of humor and, and therefore actually both your observations and your commentary is often um undercut undercut isn't the right word either but cross-cutting mm-hmm. uh, both humor to either emphasize a point or, um, or to make some other observation, and the humor is obviously often centered around yourself, like mm-hmm. good stand-up comics do, or in the footnotes, or even in some of your sentence structure. And it strikes me that you've been uh, funny for all of your life, or starting from uh, starting from young. I think I, I heard you on one podcast say that you were a little bit of a clown uh, as a boy. But I was just interesting. Is there anything which comes around? How you make those observations and the way that your humor comes out, it also strikes me as if, if we were to call something because we we don't call it much, but it, it, there is a Britishness to your humor or or an english actually you you hear it I don't know whether this might be a public school thing which I'm that touching cloth um if you if you know if you know you know is all I am going to say <laughs> on that um and so th- there there is a strand of that which i I, I find also really um intriguing is it something that you have to work upon or is it partly i can now hear in this because you've got a slight call it irreverence for authority or say rather you will see something and tell it how you see it which is actually there's a big strand in a great english tradition um, of that as well so i guess the question is humor observation how does it all come about and how you think i suppose they come they come
1: about through i i always think through through kind of being sort of anti-systematic if that makes sense <laughs> in that i know that i am a paradox and i know that christianity is paradoxical you know i and i i grew up in a kind of very paradoxical context of being you know i had a very privileged very happy childhood in many ways um but equally it was it was sort of erratic and slightly kind of bonkers and disorganized um and so you le- you learn i suppose you, you, you there are one of two routes you take when you when when that is your kind of um where the way you come into order, either you you, you then seek systems very strongly you even try and impose order and i talk about in the book about my father's whole life has been a kind of an attempt to oppose impose order on the orderless and you know it's why he likes recycling bins it's to know you know the bin when i go back to my parents house the bin is divided into four different things going that you can see to impose a or you can begin to embrace the idea that order is not, in fact, the norm, that, that, that again, the only thing I think that has any kind of coherent order in order itself is is the concept of God. And that's too ordered for us to understand. So to us, it seems absurd, and yet it is, in fact, true order. So so there's a sort of an embrace of paradox, which I suppose is very British, the kind of idea, or English, perhaps, that, that and, and, and you know, again, speaking of someone who is irreverent of authority and yet knows he is part of an authority, an authority figure who is part of an establishment, who is, you know, a clergyman, who is... And again, but but we've always been very good at that, I think, of holding that intention. The, the the finest writers, English comic writers in the in the in the English canon, um are people who are both insiders and outsiders. You know, it's Jonathan Swift who is who is he's an Irishman, so he seems like an outsider. He fails to get political preferment because he's too scatterlogical and controversial. And yet he is Dean of Dublin. He is, you know, an establishment figure. He's an Oxford graduate, et cetera, et cetera. So I think I think you, know, you look at Jane Austen, similarly, you look at Stern. I think if you, if you look at those great English comic writers, all three of whom, interestingly, have two of them are ordained, one of them is the daughter and sister of, of a cleric. And I think actually, the Church of England, the great gift the Church of England has given, perhaps, to global literature is that ability to hold mm. the paradoxical and say, yep, okay, these things are. And it means you can poke fun at something without necessarily saying, I want to destroy this thing completely. You know, you can say, I can poke fun at the Church of England and still say, but I still believe it's better that it's there.
0: Well, <laughs> I just. Love no, because it, you were saying that basically the Church of England is full of clowns. Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think... and, and, it, uh, yeah, with, with and love. Yeah, with love, <laughs> with love yeah, and kissing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Exactly that.
0: Exactly yeah, that. and you had, I, I I read, I think you did a very good defense of P.G. Woodhouse as well as a yes. comic writer. Yeah, yeah. Wood, and again, Woodhouse is very good at that. And he sort of,
1: that whole concept of Woodhouse living in a sort of dream, work, I mean, the person who writes the finest defense of Woodhouse is George Orwell, um, who when Woodhouse is getting a lot of stick because he was living in France and the Nazis interred him and they made him some right things where he sort of says, Oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't be fighting after all chaps, that sort of thing. But uh, Woodhouse's genius is kind of living in that fantasy world. And yet also saying something again, something true through.
0: Yeah. Paradox. Paradox. Great. Okay. Well do a fun section now of underrated, overrated, and then uh, finish up. So, um, I'll I'll name something and you can go underrated, overrated, or you can pass, or you can make some sort of comment. We've got a few so this the theme is kind of Britishness. Okay. Uh on this. So um overrated, underrated James Bond movies. Gotta be careful with this one. Yes, <laughs> uh, it very much depends. I think
1: the I can it's very Church of England to be both. Um <laughs> yes. I think certain James Bond movies are overrated. I actually think the Daniel Craig movies are overrated, I'm afraid. I think some of the Sean Connery films are actually overrated. I think the Roger Moore ones are underrated yeah. again because they are preposterous and I enjoy that. I think Timothy Dalton is underrated. Uh George Lazenby is underrated. I think actually Piers Brosnan is a way underrated. So
0: both all, that. The, all of the underdogs. Yeah. The, yeah that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. very yeah. British. Okay. Yeah. Underrated, overrated. Uh the monarchy. Let's go for the British monarchy.
1: Um, again, both. Um, I think what is underrated is a lot of... I think the, the crown actually operates in a way that is... Um, it does... It can can create a kind of d- degree of coherence and a degree of cohesiveness, which, again, is ridiculous. Mm. But rooting your national myth in something ridiculous is a hell of a... <laughs> and rooting the national myth in something that you can practically oppress people's lives with. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I am a monarchist. I am an ardent monarchist. What I think is overrated is I think... Um, the human aspect of it, I think, sometimes overrated. I actually don't want to know about what their feelings really. I don't really yeah. care. Um, I, I think these, you know, there is a necessary, um, the psychodrama of it. I think yeah. is overrated, but I think, uh, you know, the concept of the crown uh, is underrated.
0: I think. Very fair. Afternoon tea.
1: Um, overpriced. <laughs> overpriced. Um, I like lo- you know. Look, I I am a man who could eat corted cream until I died, which is exactly what would happen if yep. I only ate it. Good job, you are in the clergy then. I know, yeah. So, um
0: underrated. I think it's become too
1: kitsch. I think the actual roots of it are very good.
0: Yeah, I I think I'd agree. Um, the House of Lords. Oh, underrated. I
1: am a great
0: advocate for the House of Lords. And should we still have
1: bishops in them? Yep i did, i would have only just not bishops. the ones Yeah,
0: just not the ones <laughs> just not these <laughs> maybe the ones elected by yeah, <laughs> just elected just bishops these
1: ones. yes <laughs> these
0: ones. Yeah. very good uh double decker buses um i
1: actually i'm i love the tube i love trains i hate traveling by bus because i get this sense that i could be walking quicker certainly mm-hmm. and i can hate that idea and i hate the fact that some bus routes which i know they have to do will take me away from my destination in order to get me there quickly mm. so i if i'm on the tube i can't see that happening. so you know if i'm underground or i'm on a train line i can't see that happening so i think
0: yeah so you're using travel to travel yeah as opposed to i would say well maybe you just sit on the top of the double-decker bus and let the world... watch the world don't worry if it's going to take you twelve minutes or seventeen minutes. This is London; it's just going to take you whatever. Yeah, no, I know. What, whatever we, you decide to choose will always be about the same time. Actually, I I really do recommend walking, but it will be the same. You have to well, walk so away that, around. I you like get walking, and I get yeah. this. Yeah, and I get. <laughs> but you sense, could be walking. I that's could be true. Walking, yeah. Okay, um, black taxis. Um, un-
1: underrated, I think. I think you know, with the rise of Uber and Bolt and Free Now and all that, they they. So say, oh, the black cabbies. But there are genuinely times where, you know, hailing a black cab has felt like sailing, saving my life. Yeah. I mean, the right thing to do. Yeah. Been... <laughs> I've got to get to a train or stuff. So, yeah, there have cab- been cabbies who have, uh, black cabs that have undoubtedly stayed, saved my bacon a number of times. So I will say, yeah, underrated. underrated. Um, pubs. Oh, um, I mean, I love pubs. I. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's possible for them to be overrated because it is. I cannot speak so too mm-hmm. highly enough of them. That said, there are a number of hauling pubs, particularly in central London. There are bad pubs. Um, so
0: some of them are underrated, some of them are Yeah, community pubs, pubs which have got more family-oriented. Yes. And I get. I mean, I'm assuming, I haven't been too much around Liverpool, but Liverpool wouldn't be the same without its pubs either. Some of the so- pubs in Liverpool are just... Yeah,
1: I mean, it would be impossible to overrate them because they are sick.
0: Okay, and then last one, cricket. Oh, <laughs> well, um see, I've got a bit of a kind of tan,
1: partly because I have spent the last 10 weeks essentially playing cricket. Um, I think cricket is underrated. And I don't mean because I think it's some sort of great sporting thing, but I think cricket is long. It can often be boring. It has moments, flashes of inspiration that seem gone too soon. And it is often, as we saw in the Ashes yesterday, incredibly unfair. And therefore, I think it is a very good metaphor for life more generally. Mm. Though I will say it is under it.
0: Yeah, I think I tend to agree on that. So I think the the long form test match or things over days, uh, a well, for theatre, I think it does tend to ref- reflect a five act play. Yes. Or the acts of life of which in any good five act play now that you have is partly boring right at least for modern life even Shakespeare in its long acts we cannot stomach it in the same way Shakespeare in its time was actually a much more uh, community sport community practice than we have it uh, than we have it today and actually I do think it ties together uh, Britain but interestingly if you go to say India or Pakistan Mm -hmm. uh, I guess this is you know you mixed colonial legacy but it really does tie together uh, the country as well so it's interesting although it's not a huge worldwide sport yeah i think it does reflect it, it does reflect a certain amount of humanity perhaps uh, a little bit better than it might seem great so what are your um current projects or things you're working on or sorts
1: i'm um, i'm writing on bits i'm hoping to um have a new book out next year that i'm sort of working away on and i'm negotiating the exact format of at the moment but but once that is finalised, which I'm hoping will happen this week or next, it will be...
0: A... Is that a secret theme? Or can uh, you
1: it will mention something to do with um, places around the world. It will be a bit more global than the previous okay. ones. Um, and we'll hopefully will feature churches in some way, shape or form. So we'll keep a religious theme, but I, I hope it will be a bit more sort of global. Um As you mentioned, I have been appointed to be Vicar of Charlbury in Oxfordshire, just north of Oxford. Um starting in January.
0: So I've got a lot of kind of prep for that really. So yeah, it's keeping me yeah. busy. Yeah. Keeping you out of London and the Lon- me out of London <laughs> and the London uh, church yes, uh, politics. Exactly. Great. And then uh last question then, do you have any uh life advice? Uh so this would be very appropriate for clergy, or I guess you could say we've covered a lot, so either life advice about thinking about how to live in the world or maybe also advice for um young people or people thinking because you don't need to be young or thinking of, of a life um in the clergy um you know what it might mean to be ordained or not so you can go either or all, sort of vague life advice or so thoughts that you want to edit vague with. Life advice. things in life that should be taken seriously
1: and there are things in life that should not be taken seriously and it the real thing to realize is that they're the opposite way around to the way you think they are
0: interesting So reverse it.
1: Anything you think should be taken seriously, don't take it seriously. Anything you should think should not be taken seriously, take it seriously. Very good. Okay. That's my advice. Um, In terms of those considering holy orders, in terms of ordination, um, it seems an obvious thing to say. Do pray about it. I think prayer prayer is helpful. Prayer works. Um, It is a huge life-changing decision. It is not to be taken lightly. I have a clerical colleague who i who i love and respect very much and he says i always think when someone comes to me and says they want to be ordained it's my job to do my very best to put them off and if they still want to do it then to encourage them as much as i can um but yeah has it, it has been the most important thing i have ever done but it isn't it isn't for everyone and you can be a fully authentic and impressive person and a fully authentic and impressive christian without having a piece of cloth around your neck so
0: do always bear that in mind very good and i guess that means you're a fan of meditation in general prayer as a specific form but that
1: yeah and and for me it is about rhythm keep keep some form of rhythm for me it is saying you know i'm i the things i hate most in churches today is where you go in and you don't know what's going to it's just like, yeah, we're going to change it today because it's blah blah blah. I use the same words every morning and every evening to pray with because I think again it goes back to what we said at the very start about faith and doubt. If there is a day where actually I go and I don't feel it, I'm held in the rhythm of that regularity. Yeah, if you're
0: constantly trying to do something different every day, you're not going to get that. Yeah. It's the same with some Buddhist chanting practices, actually Catholic catholic chanting yeah. practices as well with that repeated being and they and they enter into your soul then in a way you know um and i
1: am pretty sure and i've seen people on their deathbeds um who have that rhythm and it it will kick in in the important times of your life when you cannot hold things in yourself whether that's when you die or when you're going through major things you just find those words you know i clean
0: out yes i've read about it within mystic practice as well I i haven't personally see, mm.
1: yeah, no, I know I've seen massive but for me, the Book of Common Prayer, just this rage which has been part of the rhythm of English life and prayer for five hundred years nearly now. Um, and it works. It's that rhythm. It's that just keeping that that rhythm of prayer taking over until you need
0: it great. Well, on that note, I'll just highlight once again uh, the book Touching Cloth and Fergus. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hope you enjoy the show. Do like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast.